Half the Child, Book Four, A Summer of Concepts. It's a summer of concepts. Together, we consider ideas and employ cognitive reasoning and collect all that raw material in hope of shaping something. Certainly, I'm biased, but I can see Ben has a fine mind for a five-year-old. It's sharp and inquisitive, and best of all, works in tandem with his even finer heart. Whether this is all primarily due to nature or nurture, I couldn't say, but I'm grateful. We find we have more questions than ever, like why a heart is a thing pumping blood, but also a thing we give to someone on February 14th. Why don't we give cards shaped like kidneys or spleens? It turns out that whole water flushes clockwise and not counterclockwise below the equator thing is a myth, which I find disappointing because for some reason I wanted it to be true. Ben asks me why Aunt Katie's baby isn't here yet, and I certainly fumble. I just can't explain how Katie and Chris traveled 500 miles to a military town and lived in a Motel 6 for nine days all the while surrounded by boxes of formula, bottles, diapers, creams, lotions, clothes, toys, blankets, stuffed animals, while Katie recorded a Caribbean resort commercial for a new client from the bed. I can't explain how they waited outside a hospital, a hospital they paid thousands of dollars to on behalf of a young Navy couple, Christians who already had three children, and decided 48 hours later they would, in fact, keep their new infant after all, because they reconsidered having their daughter raised by lesbians. And I can't explain how, despite all the paperwork and fees, lawyers and notaries, all this was perfectly legal, not to mention non-refundable, under state law. And I certainly can't explain that long 500-mile drive back with Katie and Chris silently holding hands on those dreary interstates. Instead, I say, I have a feeling we're going to see that baby soon. During spring training, I read Ben the story of the White Sox first baseman that quit the game and forfeited $13 million because the team banned his 14-year-old son from the clubhouse. We discuss kids in the workplace and how, believe it or not, even some controllers at LaGuardia are opposed to it. Ben's as shocked as me. Many things don't make sense. Like in April, when Ben hears an airman shot his squadron commander at Lackland Air Force Base, where I once served. Or when Ben's best friend and next-door neighbor, Charlie, is called a slope by an older kid. We also find that the things we apologize for most often we usually don't need to apologize for, while the things we truly need to apologize for, we don't. We contemplate this bizarre election year and the dramatist personae at the center, Bernie, Hillary, Donald. Ben comes with me behind the curtain when I vote in the primary, and we discuss each candidate at length before feeling the burn. Other concepts play out. Ben has been with me for all the milestones. First swim, first haircut, first lost tooth, first use of the potty. So we prepare for the next big step. 
removing training wheels. I pick him up at Grandpa Al's temple, where he quizzically studies a painting in the hallway, 1 Kings 3.16. Dark oils depict two mothers fighting over a baby. As King Solomon orders a sword drawn, the child wriggling in agony as they prepare to cut it in two. I'm convinced it's beyond Ben's comprehension, so I change the subject. When I play my Beatles CDs in the car, Ben wants to know how she can keep her face in a jar by the door. Death, life. War, peace. Crime, punishment. Rich, poor. Hate, love. We contemplate it all. And I've learned that there's the big picture and there's the small picture. And the small picture may, in fact, be bigger than the big picture. These days, I keep my head down. I'm working arrivals, and this older guy, Chauncey, ambles up. I doubt we've ever exchanged a hundred words total. He's one of these totally clueless baby boomers, constantly trying to put down younger guys by saying clever shit like, You know, Paul McCartney was in a band before Wings. Very timely, as if millennials walk around humming, Maybe I'm amazed. Did you know I have two kids? He asks me. No. He hesitates. See, their mother, she dumped me. For her dentist. True story. You know, said, like, we're moving to Seattle. That was that. Kids were five and six. I talked to a lawyer, but... Back then, well, I was wrong, I guess. I just let them go. Hmm. Us older guys, we were wrong, lots of us. We let our kids walk away. He says nothing for long seconds. But not you. Your kid will never forget that. I look up. Thanks. It's back to work. I keep my head down. I'm not good at relaxing and enjoying life. I remain on edge, as if something lurks around the next corner. Another salvo. Even though these days, Hillary and I only speak to discuss my outstanding bills. But I do enjoy Ben. We spent our first Christmas together with the Mullins and slept at my mother's place. I stayed up until 5 a.m., hot gluing wooden tracks to a Thomas the Tank Engine train board, and nearly hot glued my hands together. I felt sick because I forgot to buy the holiday truck from Hess. But Kevin smiled and held up a package. He bought it back in November and told Ben it was from me. Ben and I fall into a routine, which I always read is what children crave. Kindergarten is a success. And although Ben is in the after-school program, on many days I'm not working, so he skips. On the weekends, he's in karate, and I attempt to enroll him in peewee soccer. But the coach insists Ben and all five-year-olds attend every practice. I explain his parents live apart. You know, like 50% of American parents. But apparently coach has managed to lumber 16 years into the 21st century without hearing about divorce. As always, my mother and siblings come to my child care rescue when I'm stuck in the tower. Sleeping at my mother's has become normative for Ben. 
As for his mother, Ben sees her often because she and Casper moved in with her parents. For how long? I don't know. I keep wondering what will come next. Even without graduate school, my schedule is full. Once a week, I visit Paco in Manhattan, and when Ben's in class, I steal time to visit Ring of Fire. Over the cold winter months, I find myself getting stronger, harder, but I still don't fully relax. Ben and I visit Sam and Deborah and Henry in New Jersey, and we stop for breakfast at Denny's. The hostess asks, table for three? I look around quizzically. Uh, no, just two. Oh, I thought mom was parking the car. Last fall, we had another supervised visitation scheduled, and we met in the park. As usual, she brought Casper along. Hillary insisted I always have a trusted adult with me for two reasons. One, to constantly alert the authorities over any potential criminal behavior, and two, to witness and corroborate anything said or done in my presence. We rotated a regular cast of Sam, Moe, Katie, and my brothers. I provided the snacks. That day was Tommy's turn. We watched from some distance on a bench as she played with Ben on the swings, and then I saw Ben hug her. Meanwhile, she seemed to argue with Casper, who then crossed the long expanse toward us. This poor schmuck looks like he's headed to Gitmo, muttered Tommy. Mikil? He pronounced it Mikel so it rhymes with Vil. I didn't stand. Uh Uh-huh. But Tommy was on his feet at once. I sometimes forget my brother can schmooze clients just like any small business owner. Hey there, I'm Tom Mullen, Ben's uncle. Casper smiled tightly, offering a limp shake. Mikil, do you think this should end, this watching? I shrugged. It's what the court ordered. I am speaking to you, not courts. Do you think it should end? It is very sad. I stood, too. You should have thought of that before you helped abduct my son. We do not look at it that way. Uh, This was all a... His sentence trailed off, not that I cared. He turned to Tommy. What do you think? Do you support this watching? Tommy smiled his client's smile. I support whatever the state suggests. You could say, I'm a big law and order guy. And that grin grew larger. Casper turned, but I called out, hey. He stopped. You're big with the lectures, yet she doesn't even talk to me. She's cold as ice. Personally, I don't give a shit. But in front of Ben, well, you're a shrink, no? Doesn't she know how harmful it is, having one parent acting so nasty to the other? He closed his eyes. I spoke to her about this. She will never forgive you. I looked as Tommy shook his head. Forgive me? For what? For trying to have her arrested. Ah, well then, back to square one. She shouldn't have abducted Ben, no? We do not view it that way. We do not use that word. I stepped closer, and Tommy coughed loudly. I said, you can use any fucking word you want. 
That's the word the court of the Hague used. That's what it was. The following Monday, she petitioned the court to end our supervision during her visitations. Judge Westfall immediately agreed. My brother Kevin unexpectedly tells us he's asking Nicole, formerly J-Law, to marry him. They've been together almost two years now, and the man who was so happy to secure a pain-free divorce is now eager to jump back in. As always, I'm stunned by life and the changes it brings about. Before Thanksgiving, I heard again from Gina. She had friended me on Facebook, but I was still a little surprised she called. And I was even more surprised when, after a lengthy back and forth, she invited me to join her in Brooklyn for a college production of Charlie Victor Romeo, the play that recreates cockpit voice recordings of fatal airplane accidents. Of course, I'd seen it before. How could I not? And I was touched because she clearly suggested something close to my heart. But I explained how work was jammed up, plus two weeks annual training in Oklahoma. Then here comes the holidays. She politely said she understood. I said thanks and congratulated her on finishing grad school. Once again, I dodged a wreck. Paco continually brings her up, but I always change subjects. On Christmas Eve, Katie asked if I'm ready to resume dating, and I said no, but I told her all about Gina as we sprinkled red and green sugar on cookies. Katie listened. We continued discussing Gina while playing a drinking game during Love Actually, a shot for every bizarre, inappropriate fat joke. Finally, Katie said, A nice Jewish girl from Forest Hills slinging drinks at a topless place? As Eileen would say, Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph. I think when they held you up by your ankles at Elmhurst General and slapped your ass, they said, May this one live in interesting times. Early in the new year, Gina posted a photo of herself with some handsome jerk up front at a Billy Joel gig in Madison Square Garden. Unfriending her would have been a dick move, but thankfully Facebook offers that option to block new postings and therefore pretend someone doesn't exist. Life, of course, offers no such option. I'm late catching an elevator because we couldn't find Ben's Disney Plains lunchbox, and the LaGuardia construction makeover is making traffic insane. Hold it! I jump on board and face the other rider. I'm alone with Stephanie for the first time since the near miss. We exchange awkward looks and descend. Hi, Mike. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. We've seen each other in crowded settings, the tower, break room, even a holiday party. We've nodded, murmured greetings, but we've never discussed it, even though ten months have elapsed. I forced myself to speak. I'm glad I ran into you. Hmm? Why's that? Well, I know time's passed, but I owe you an apology. I, I should have earlier. Stephanie looks uncomfortable. You don't owe... Yeah, I do. As usual, I cough as I falter. I've been looking at it wrong. All this time, I mean. I keep thinking, I just 
owed apologies to those 158 souls on board. She smiles as the elevator stops. There was a lap child, too. Yeah, I know. The 158 includes the lap kid, but not the dog. Anyway, I realize I owe you, too, so I'm sorry. The doors close. Stephanie looks at me for the first time since 2015. You don't have to say that. I wasn't on either plane. I know, but if things had... You know. Well, you would have been a victim, too. Not that you did one thing wrong. It was all on me. All of it. But it would have been your nightmare, too. Your trauma. You'd always be wrapped up in it. I hold the doors as she exits. Then she gives me a quick hug, her head averted. I appreciate it, Mike. Really. I hope it works out. Damaged goods. I should print up a name tag. Sometimes Paco annoys the piss out of me, and Katie says that's when he's really earning his money. She knows more about psychotherapy than I do, but still. We've had lots of fires to put out, what with that little international abduction fiasco and whatnot. I once mentioned we could go years without discussing anything but her and Ben and his eyes flashed in response. Then he immediately asked about my father. I said we had more pressing issues, like court, but he wouldn't relent. Once we get past the preliminaries, Paco really digs into the marrow. How did I feel during his beatings? Where specifically did the belt strike me? What was I thinking when curled up in a corner of the bed? Which was the worst beating of all? Why? Fuck you, I bark when he inquires about the belt's buckle end. I write the checks. I decide what we talk about. When I blow up, he gets zen. I never tell you how to land airplanes. And so, into the muck we dive, head first, wallowing and wallowing. I don't see the point. But ever so methodically, he draws me further along. And somehow, we're back full circle to Ben. I rail how I've never struck a woman or child in my life, never even considered it. Paco pushes and pushes, and one evening I blurt out my greatest fear that underneath it all, diaper changings, late feedings, bedtime lullabies, peel it all away, and I'm just Thomas Mullen Sr., ready to pounce. Eventually, we move on to my mother, and different muck emerges. A few months after these discussions, I dragged myself home, feeling the full effects of the winter flu. Scraping ice off the windshield in the employee lot, I alerted the after-school program I was running late. Again. Ben was cranky the entire time at Walgreens. After parking, I walked past our door and up to my mother's, where she served homemade beef vegetable soup and fresh biscuits for us while I told her my woes. I'm bone tired, chills and fever. I've got to drag him home, make his lunch, lay out his clothes, get him in the bath, then into bed, and start all over tomorrow, then drag my ass back to the airport. I looked up. She was smiling as she stirred. Smiling! Is that right, she said.
Now, imagine having four, or five, or six. I sighed. You win. She poured milk and winked. You'll never be half the man your mother is, kid. I grinned in agreement as she started singing Love Me Do. Then she suggested Ben stay with her while I sleep it off. The next night was deja vu, and after I finally got Ben into bed, I brought a hot cup of tea with honey into my room. It was Katie's advice. Neither of us can afford throat issues in our jobs. I sipped, then heard a crash. At his doorway, I saw him scampering back into bed. Get under those covers, I yelled. Two minutes later, there was more noise, this time a tap-tap-tapping on my wall. I spilled hot tea into my lap because I rose so fast. I cursed and stomped back to Ben's room. He was under the covers, only it was his little two bare feet resting on the pillow, toes wiggling. Cut the crap, I shouted, my sore throat aching. Get to sleep! There wasn't a sound while I finished the tea. I actually thought he was out, until a louder crash indicated he had knocked a dozen books off his shelf in the dark. When I swung open that door and hallway light flooded the room, he was on his knees, hurriedly stacking Dr. Seuss. The fevers and chills and body aches were in full bore as blood pounded in my ears. My head hurt, and I dreaded another severe throat issue. And clearly, Ben wasn't taking me seriously. I crossed to him in three quick strides and loomed over him, not sure what would happen next. Ben turned and for the first time ever looked at me in fear. All I could see were the blues of those eyes. The calendar flipped and it wasn't 2016. It was 1984. And I was in a bedroom five doors down and a large angry man held a belt in his hand. I'd finally arrived at the moment I feared. On some level, I heard a soft whimper. Whose? Then I acted. I plopped down onto his bed. Ben blinked, and I croaked. Hey, Mr. Nutty, if you want to read, just ask me. Now pick one book. Ben impulsively hugged my shoulders from behind and handed over just me and my dad. I woke up after 1 a.m. lying beside him, still fully clothed. But two days later, facing a silent Paco, I was more terrified than ever. I came this close, I explained. I was ready to draw back my hand. I'm just like my father. The same dreaded disease runs through my blood. Enough, Paco yelled. You are too fucking much, Mullen. I stared at him the way Ben stared at me in the dark. We don't get slammed for what we consider doing. We're not confessing impure thoughts to Father McGillicuddy, right? There's a song in uh, The Most Happy Fella. Brother, you can't go to jail for what you're thinking. I kept staring. I'll say it one more time for the last time. Then that's it. He leaned forward. You are not, repeat, not your father. You have never struck your child. And if you maintain your equilibrium, you never will. It's not fucking hereditary, like baldness. For once, 
the tears I felt welling up were tears of joy and relief. Had I broken the cycle of abuse? Paco's voice rose. You will not fuck up at parenting like your father did. I found myself nodding. I finally believed him. My greatest triumph. Then he leaned back and he said, You're going to fuck up at parenting in your own way. Sooner or later, I'll face a rematch with Hugo Concepcion and I'll be damned if I'll suck that smelly canvas twice. The next time, it's his turn. Tough talk, I know, but I'm backing it up by stopping at Ring of Fire every opportunity I'm free from Ben or work, and Archie spends time honing my limited skills. Earlier tonight, she tied my shoelaces together before sparring, forcing me to concentrate on footwork like never before. At one point, I looked like young Jerry Lewis without the crew cut. I've punished myself on the Stairmaster, ridden my bike along potholed streets, sweated with the weights. I've also given up Pepsi and now drink seltzer. My blood pressure is no longer problematic. I'm losing pounds and gaining muscle with a bit of a religious fervor. The question, of course, is how long this enthusiasm will last. For now, I have a specific goal. Archie notes it's a good sign that I've worn out the balls of my socks, as all good boxers do, and that I'm no longer backhanding to ward off punches. I'm military pressing dumbbells, and I look up at the silent TV and groan. Everybody loves Raymond. As always, Ray is acting like either a nine-year-old boy or a mentally challenged adult, begging his wife for either forgiveness or sex. I look in time to see her elbow him right in the balls, and even muted, I know the studio audience is howling. After all, what's funnier than striking a spouse in the genitals? Then it's followed by a commercial for whipped topping, in which it's another father who is a complete asshole, as he's reprimanded at the refrigerator for sneaking an extra dessert by the smarter wife and smarter son and smarter daughter all three shaking their heads in disgust. Two commercials later, a different asshole father is hiding from mowing the lawn, but the garage door opens and the disgusted wife, son, and daughter are holding gardening implements. I hope Judge Rhonda Westfall isn't watching TV. It's a beautiful morning, and I'm actually feeling pretty good. I walk Ben to school and we discuss Charlie's birthday party invitation and what he'll say to his friend Rosie because her grandpa died. Now, late for work again, I double back to my car. At some point, I realize I'm smiling. I'm still smiling as I approach Lovey, smiling even as the young Asian woman steps from behind the fender, approaching me quickly. Am I smiling as she reaches into an oversized purse? I can't know, but I watch curiously to see what she retrieves. It's not a gun. It's something worse, much worse. She hands me a subpoena. I know when my life winds down, I'll assess my regrets, despite the wise individuals who tell us we shouldn't have any. And I know even now, most of my major regrets will stem from these past four summers even if I die at a hundred, 
like a Robert Frost fork in the woods or a 90-degree deviation from a palm reader, these four years are setting the course for all that follows. Yet, of all my regrets, what I don't know is my greatest will always be not firing Hillary. Later, I'll learn all her partners were on vacation this week, and so Hillary responded to this subpoena in the worst possible way. She legitimized it by answering. Once this order to show cause was put into effect and argued against by Hillary and entered on the calendar of, who else, Judge Rhonda Westfall, it was too late to undo. This request to reopen the case and have New York State take a fresh look at the long-term fate of Benjamin Cohen Mullen? It's completely bogus and legally indefensible. But, as lawyers like to say, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't shove it back in. This toothpaste is bullshit, as all three senior partners will angrily tell Hillary when they return from Nantucket and West Hampton and Ocean City. In this state, there must be grounds to reopen a settled custody decision, and Michael Patrick Mullen doesn't fit any of the required criteria. For example, physically or sexually violent toward the child and or other parent, mentally unstable, addicted to alcohol, drugs, gambling, or prostitution, guilty of a felony, financially destitute and or homeless, etc., so Hillary simply should have filed a brief statement noting the request itself was invalid, with the proper legal precedence attached. Instead, she made the worst mistake of her career by legitimizing it. Late last summer, Ben and I built an elaborate sand castle near the Rockaway shore. We labored for hours, the sun burning the back of my neck so fiercely that the collar of my shirt stung for days. And then, just as we neared completion, we dug a wee bit too deep and the shovel hit water, water that first trickled but then gushed before eroding all our work. The castle collapsed in upon itself as Ben and I watched helplessly. It's quiet on my break, so I tear into the thick envelope with the subpoena, and as I do, a piece of paper falls to the floor. I bend to retrieve it, frowning at yet another distorted communication. This page intentionally left blank. Scott Fitzgerald supposedly said, the very rich are different from you and me. And Ernest Hemingway supposedly quipped, yes, they have more money. Though Scott was right, of course. They are different. How could they not be? Many of my fellow Americans know that not having money or not having enough money, affects everything, as that check engine light continually reminds. One day in the terminal, Wayne walked me to an ATM and watched as I withdrew $60. Then he asked why I didn't extract 100 or even 200 Why make extra trips? I couldn't explain withdrawing 60 meant my balance was now $3.13, until payday. It was the same look at the post office when I asked for 14 stamps, or when I told the attendant in Teterboro, where they don't allow self-service, to insert $17 regular into Lovey's tank. It's why I found my mom ironing my shirt 
after she learned I stopped using the cleaners because $1.75 per item was too steep. When I have a few extra bucks at Stop and Shop, I buy additional cans of soup, knowing that'll be dinner in a few weeks. And whenever I have change, I dump it into Lovey's ashtray, since I'll eventually need to convert it to paper money. One day last February, I had no groceries, and every single one of my credit cards was maxed out, except my Macy's card. So I drove to the iconic round store on Queens Boulevard, and in the gourmet shop, I bought Harry and David pretzels and a Danish ham, and ate ham sandwiches for a week. The oddity of being poor in the digital age. Now, Mullen v. Cohen is officially reopened, and somehow I'll have to find tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars more. Perhaps that's the true end game here, a simple war of financial attrition, not wits or stamina. And one thing is obvious, the lawyers and courts are happy to bleed both sides dry until someone quits from sheer debt. Abusing children is a big, big business. My mother seems tired, so Ben and I cook pasta shells and bolognese sauce over at her place. He grates the cheese. We can calculate the number of candles she's lit at St. Rita's over the last four years, but in other ways, it's hard to calculate the toll all my travails have had on her. She suffers when her children suffer. And now I know why. All my supporters, family, friends, Paco, are taking my emotional temperature. No one will say it, but I know they're concerned if I'm up for yet another round of legal warfare. Despite all the scars and the lack of funds, I am certainly ready. If I have any doubts, they're dispelled when Ben slips his hand into mine while walking to school, or pretends to pull a napkin from my ear, or smiles at me in the morning. Somehow, she managed to inject a bogus claim into the wheels of justice, but I haven't abandoned all faith in the system. This filing is wrong, and any impartial witness would say the same. Ben is happy living with me, and happy seeing his mother when she's not traveling to Israel or Bulgaria. And so, I gird my loins. I have no other choice. 